Father, we are thankful for all that you have done and are doing on our behalf, and we realize that we do not see the fullness of it or even close. So we ask that this morning, through your word, that you would open our eyes to the goodness of the good news, that you would increase our view of how good of a king you are, what you have done on our behalf and what you are doing in and through us right now. It's in Jesus' name that I pray these things. Amen. Maybe seated. Well, today on this Christ the King Sunday, this last Sunday of the church year, this culmination of the calendar where we celebrate Christ's reign and rule over all things, we are closing out Ephesians with a passage that seems appropriate, the most extended passage in the New Testament on holy war. On the divine battle our king invites us into. Now, depending on how we frame this, different things might come to mind. When I, mind, when I say the phrase holy war, you might be thinking like an Islamic jihad, right? Um, when I say a phrase like spiritual warfare, you probably think of something slightly different. But if we look for the, 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 the biggest focus of battle imagery in the church today, what's going to come up for us is the language of culture war. Right? This rhetoric that we are neck deep in a struggle that will decide no less than the future of civilization, or at least our corner of it. Because this cultural trend, this proposed law, this other new development has the potential to destroy the society we hold dear. Through the lens of this culture war, every election becomes the most important election of our lifetimes. Which like, isn't actually possible, Right? Whatever issue is at the top of the news cycle becomes the most strategic issue for us to care about. And, and every person, every corporation, every political party on the other side of the fence on that particular issue becomes the enemy to be defeated. So in the midst of a culture war dynamic, there's this need for strength, the political strength, the financial strength, the cultural strength. There's a need for warriors, people who are going to fight back, who aren't going to let this, this craziness take over. The stakes seem incredibly high. And some of us hear this kind of language and we resonate with it. Maybe even wonder like, why doesn't ISC talk much like this? And then others of us are repulsed by it. Right? We've seen some of the fruit that comes from this kind of language, the, the hatred, the divisiveness, uh, sometimes even moral compromises made in the name of gaining power. And it makes some of us want to fight back, kind of do a culture war to the culture war. <laughs> and others of us just want to run away from fighting as quickly as possible. We want to lower the stakes. We don't want to emphasize our differences. We want to emphasize all we have in common. We want to make any differences out that we might have to be minimal. But none of these reactions are going to make it through this passage unscathed. Because the stakes of the culture warriors are actually not too high, but too low. And the weapons of their warfare are dangerously misguided. There is a holy war, but not the one they're fighting, and not in the way they're fighting it. To see why, we have to understand how Paul's words are going to translate to our day. 
because there are some big differences between Ephesus then and now. In Paul's day, Ephesian society wasn't tipping away from Christianity or towards something else. That's what causes a lot of the consternation today, tipping our society tipping away from a certain type of Christianity towards something else. In Paul's day, Ephesus had always been something else. Ephesian society was bathed in the tyranny of a powerful Roman Empire, the idolatry of the Artemis cult, the deceptions of magic and the occult, and the economic prosperity which flowed through those institutions. It's almost laughable to think of the weakness of this small group of fledgling Christ followers just trying not to be overwhelmed by the surrounding culture. They were, they were this flag hoisted in a hurricane. Now, in our society, it, it, it's different. Those who, who fear the eclipse of Christian assumptions in our culture still have power collectively to elect presidents and change Supreme Courts and guide school boards. Uh, we still feel like we can win if we try hard enough. They had no such illusions. And yet... Paul still closes his letter to Ephesus with a call to strength. Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. This is a call to fortitude. This is a a rallying cry, readying them to head out kind of into the trenches of Ephesian life. But there's already something different afoot in the call to strength. Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in his mighty power. What does it look like to be strong in his mighty power? In the Old Testament, you definitely have situations where God gives strength to defeat an enemy, and that's where this uh, this language is coming from. But it's usually not the same kind of strength that the enemy is coming in with. In Psalm 20, we read, don't trust in chariots or trust in horsemen, but trust in the name of the Lord your God. Psalm 147, his pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him. All through the prophets, Israel's kings are urged not to lean on the power of other nations. Those nations are broken reeds that will pierce them when they lean on them. God loves taking small numbers, hopeless situations, and turning them upside down. He doesn't love matching numbers, matching strength in the same way that the enemies have strength. But, you know, maybe God changed his mind here in Ephesus. Put on the full armor of God. He says in verse 11, that's, that's military imagery straight up. Paul is, is setting up imagery of a divinely sanctioned conflict, but not a culture war. Because in a culture war, the battlefield is horizontal. Our group against their group, their ideas versus our ideas, their laws versus our laws, each trying to take terrain away from the other in a zero-sum game. But the battlefield for this holy war is different. The battlefield is not horizontal, but vertical. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul says that this war is not against flesh and blood, and we need to start there. When you read Acts, 
That's quite the thing to say to these Ephesians, because back in Acts 19, Ephesus degenerated into a mob that was trying to kill Paul and any Christ follower they could get their hands on, like literally, like physically kill them. There was quite a lot of flesh and blood working against Paul that were enemies of Christ in this city. But Paul says to a people who would have remembered that really clearly, they're not your antagonists. They're not your enemies. The enemies you're facing are far bigger. Now, to understand what exactly these enemies are, we need to understand the cast of characters that inhabited the imaginations of these earliest Christians. We tend to think of there being two characters in the scriptural story. There's God and humans. And in the scriptures, those absolutely take center stage, but there's also a robust, robust supporting cast, right? There's cherubim who reside in the heavenly places, constantly praising God. There's messenger angels that deliver news from God to humans. There's potentially guardian angels that protect and defend God's people. There are also, of course, demons, angelic beings who have rebelled against God and draw people from the love of him. There's the Satan or the accuser or the devil, one who seems to be a chief demon that wages war against humanity by deceiving them, by securing their allegiance, then drowning them in shame and guilt and isolation and despair, all while accusing them before God as traitors to their creator. Paul says that this Satan, this devil, is alive and well and working in his day, scheming against this fledgling band of Christians. And church, nothing has changed. You can like leave behind all the horns and the red tights. That's like not biblical or helpful in any way. But we dare not leave behind the reality of malevolent forces. Spiritual beings that are trying to draw us from the love of God and others. If you reject all the warfare language from your faith, you're not going to avoid that war. You're simply going to be oblivious to it. And oblivious people don't last very long in battle. But even that isn't the full cast of characters. Paul also references several times in his letters this mysterious group, these rulers, these authorities, these powers, often called principalities, that are both present in the earthly realm and the heavenly realm, that reside in one sense in the overlap between the two realms, between the two dimensions. Now, if we were to use the terms rulers, authorities, powers only in the earthly sense, pretty straight up, pretty clear who we'd be talking about right? Political rulers, religious rulers, military powers, like economic behemoths, uh, the people and the systems that run most of the world most of the time and seem to be driven so often by greed and power and pleasure and by just taking more. It's these kind of institutions that feel like they're slipping away in a culture war and we want to get them back. But for Paul, there's a spiritual reality underneath and behind and over and running through all those powers. Paul is saying that there are spiritual beings who were created good by God, who seem to have been part of the divine council back in Genesis 1, let us make mankind in our image. And they were given by God to oversee nations and people groups and economies. But at some point, they rebelled against the one true God and became idolatrous gods, became renegade powers, influencers of human evil who partner with the sin that dwells within us, drawing us deeper and deeper into slavery and away from freedom. See, in the New Testament, there's really 
three problems. One is the sin that is within us, which we choose, but there's also evil spiritual beings and the world, world systems that thrive on, on, on hoarding money and grasping power and amassing pleasure in ways that are in rejection of God. And all of these are intertwined with one another. The powers and the principalities are the overlap between the spiritual beings and the world systems. Now, the good news is that in Colossians 2, it says that these powers, which you maybe don't even know exist, have disarmed in the cross, that they were shown for what they were on Golgotha, right? Roman tyranny and religious corruption and mob justice and institutional failure all come together to put the true king, the good king, the real king to death. All those systems of power show themselves to be in the thrall of forces that are anti-God, anti-goodness, anti-flourish. And in the resurrection, that power, whatever power they have, is shown to be just temporary. Christ wins the decisive victory over them. The sense is that D-Day has already happened. The end is inevitable, but the war is still playing out. So in Paul's mind, for these believers, Rome is not just Rome. It's a physical nation in partnership with evil spiritual powers. The corrupt religious establishment is not just a bunch of out-of-touch elites or, you know, good people doing their best. Like, it's, it's, it's a system that is woven in with spiritual rebels in the heavenly realms. What Paul's saying is that not just that the systems are broken, he is saying they're captive to forces beyond their or our understanding, forces that are working against God's plan to heal the world. Now, if that sounds crazy weird, and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know I went to one of those kind of churches. It's no weirder than all the other weird things Christians believe. Resurrection is still way stranger, and it also makes sense of the fact that evil seems so entrenched, no matter what we do, no matter what we try. And if it sounds rather frightening and overwhelming, it should. Because our problem is bigger than we think it is. We do not just have souls that tend to reject the one who made us. We don't just live in a culture or system that, that tends to reject God. Uh, we don't just have broken systems that need a little tinkering. Our dimension is interwoven with heavenly dimensions that are in rebellion against the king, that are manifesting and working through governmental and economic and religious structures that are corrupting and destroying the creatures of God. That means our politics isn't just about our individual politicians or laws. Racism isn't just about individual racists. Inequality isn't just ah, an accidental byproduct of the system. Israel and Gaza, Russia and Ukraine are not just about the heads of state having a spat. They are structural symptoms of spiritual battles through which the rulers and authorities and powers are doing their worst to destroy humanity. Which is why Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood. We are dangerously naive if we think we can fix the systems by wresting them away from the bad people and giving them to some good people. Because the spiritual powers still have hooks in the systems themselves. Not just presidents, but the whole notion of presidencies. 
not just companies, but whole systems of economic exploitation. That's why you can change out the people and get the same results. That's why you can replace the ideology and not actually fix the problems. Because often to get the power, you have to play the game of power. And once you start playing the game, you've already lost. That's why the culture war, any culture war, even a culture war that's coming back at the culture war, is inevitably a losing battle. Because even if you win, even if you can take control, you've bought into the narrative that control is salvation and you've lost. Even if you succeed, you've warped your definition of success already so severely that you failed. In the language of the Psalms, if you beat the other side by amassing more horses and warriors, you've already lost. The reality is that there are no flesh and blood enemies here. Not really, not all the way down. Because every side is a victim in a conflict that is far greater. We are all casualties in a war happening on a deeper level, a war that we have to learn to fight in a different way with different weapons. You can imagine, Paul, right at this point, right, starting a conversation about, okay, warfare is not against flesh and blood, demons, principalities and powers, etc. Okay, let's start talking about what we normally think of when we hear the term spiritual warfare. He could talk about our authority to war against demons impacting individuals, which shows up all across the New Testament and is definitely part of our ongoing authority as Christians. You might expect him to give us some hints about casting out these territorial spirits, these cultural, societal, systemic rulers and authorities and powers in the heavenly realms. But the New Testament never gives us any insight into that. You never see Jesus or Paul or Peter doing that kind of like strategic regional spiritual warfare that some folks are attempting these days. We can absolutely pray against the influence of these powers, but trying to like name them so we can gain power over them and then cast them out is is probably a distraction at best, a dangerous at worst. But none of that is where Paul goes in this passage. He heads somewhere else entirely. Verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. The picture is of a soldier in hand-to-hand combat, not on offense, but on defense, standing their ground in an assault from the enemy. Notice, the emphasis is not on slaying the evil, but on standing amidst the evil, absorbing the onslaught. Now, why would this be? Why would winning look mostly like absorbing the evil? Church, because we are following our king into battle. And instead of fighting back, instead of giving back what he was given, he absorbed the blows. He exposed the powers by letting them do their worst to him and not playing their game. He was doing something different. He was fighting a different battle than they were. He won in a way that to all watching looked like losing. And according to Paul, our fight is simply the invitation to be grafted into the way he did warfare against evil. 
that changes the ways that we look at this armor passage because we need to be thinking about how did Jesus live into this? Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. When everyone else was trying to use Jesus for their purposes, he did not forget what he was there for. He did not lie to his own advantage or allow himself to be deceived into a different mission than what the Father had given them. He stood with integrity when everybody else wasn't. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. Righteousness here is simply a a, a word for goodness and justice. Jesus refused to play favorites the way the authorities wanted him to. He saw those on the edges. He championed those who had been left behind. He refused to give the powerful or the rich any special treatment. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Jesus' message was not one of conquering, but one of reconciliation. His message was making things right again, not just settling for a different kind of oppression. And he was always ready to offer that shalom, that peace, to anyone in any place, at any time, from any social standing, from whatever lines that were drawn, he would cross them to speak peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. I personally can't imagine the agony of Jesus' temptations in the desert, in his, in his wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane. I can't imagine the doubts in the Father, the, the temptation just to wipe everyone out who was hurting him. But he trusted in his Father. He refused to give in to the fear which could have taken hold. Take the helmet of salvation. Right? The head's most important part of the body. Jesus knew that he was ultimately safe in the Father. That the Father would vindicate him no matter what happened. That even if he died, even if he perished, he would be saved. He would be rescued. And he was. Our warfare looks like living out the truth of who God is and what He's done, even when we're buffeted by all that could destroy. The normal, everyday acts of clinging to Jesus, of growing in His character, of trusting in His provision, of loving our enemies, of seeing the unseen, of receiving His salvation, and knowing that fighting will not get us there. Has power to defeat the evil in the spiritual realms. It has power to stand against regimes. It has power to shame the powers, not because we spectacularly defeat them, but because we refuse to be defeated by them. When we refuse to be co-opted by them into their game, we show them to be defeated powers whose day is ending. Because remember, the truth is that they're already defeated. They're already done. But growing up on the farm, I, I had, on a farm, I had this experience before. After you chop the head off a snake, 
It still writhes around wildly and you can still get bit. That's where we find ourselves in this story. But in anticipation of that ultimate victory, there are a few offensive weapons here, weapons which help us gather up the spoils of his victory. We have, Paul says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, many of us are used to hearing the phrase Word of God as synonymous with Bible. Therefore, using the Word of God as a weapon, like literally means Bible thumping. But in the scriptures, the phrase word of God almost always means the gospel message, which is given to us in the scriptures, the story of who God is and what he's done in Christ. One of our offensive weapons is telling the story of Christ's victory to a world that doesn't know it yet, bearing witness to his death and resurrection and conquering of the powers in the midst of a world that is still enslaved to them. And Paul says that that story is the sword that the Spirit, the presence of God himself, will use to proclaim kingdom ground. Speaking that story that Christ has secured the victory and will be returning to make all things new is how we see Christ win back ground in this holy war. So if you want to see these things, if you want to see the kingdom come right where you are, stop worrying and start speaking. Stop watching TV and scrolling through the Twitter or X threads or whatever it's called now. Like stop complaining and bemoaning and whining about how terrible everybody on this side or that side is and get in there with those who are still enslaved to those powers and speak. Speak the name of Jesus and tell of what he's done. And maybe especially do it to those that you would consider enemies, those on the other side of those lines, because those lines don't define you anymore. You can cross them all day and declare that peace is possible because of Christ's death and resurrection. And when you think like, man, evangelism sure feels like a weak sauce tactic when I look at everything we're facing. There's more happening than you realize. There is a greater power beyond our power, both in our words and stretching far beyond those words. That's why he gives us another offensive weapon. Oftentimes this gets put as the next section, but this is actually uh, the finish of 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 the armor of God. Verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. I don't know if you noticed, like the word all comes up a lot in there. All means all. In everything, we can bring it to our Father and ask Him to leverage His power on our behalf. There is so much that we leave on the table. Not in the sense that there's, there's not power in our prayers themselves. They're just, they're just weak and simple words. They so often feel just tossed up in the heavens. But there's power in the one who is birthing those prayers in us. There's power in the one to whom those prayers are spoken to. There's power in the love with which he receives them. And there is power in the mystery that he invites us to ask so that we can have joy in receiving. See, this is what's actually happening in prayer. It talks about pray in the Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit to take his desires so that they will become our desires. When they become our desires, we beg him to fulfill the desires of our hearts, which are actually the desires of his heart. Prayer is actually God speaking to God about what God wants to do and has committed to do already through us. 
And what he's committed to do is to free everyone who will come, even and especially those we would consider our enemies. Verse 19, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might declare it fearlessly as I should. Friends, what drives culture war is fear. And Paul asks that he might be fearless. Up to this point, I've left out one of the most convicting things about how Paul is approaching this warfare. As he's writing this, he's in chains. He's in a Roman prison. He is at that very moment trapped under the idolatrous power of the powers and principalities and rulers and authorities. He is persecuted and oppressed and on the edge of survival itself. And yeah, he prays for power, but for the power to declare peace. He prays that these enemies might become friends in God that he might not betray his crucified king by being timid in speaking of him. Those jailers were not enemies to be defeated, but the beloved people that God had made who were to be wooed and won by the love of Christ. He was not fighting flesh and blood. He was praying for power to bless that flesh and blood with good news that they have not yet received. Friends, a culture war kills all. It merely condemns them and leads us right into the hands of the evil one. But we have a power that the world does not know. We have the power to wage peace, a power to absorb evil, a power to stand firm against the onslaught of the heavenly powers. Because he's already won. You can win a battle in such a way that it guarantees you lose the war. May we know that the victory has already been settled so that we can be freed to wage peace in the name of our crucified King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the king and we are not. You have won the battle. And when we try in our own wisdom, we fail. Would you send upon us your church, your Holy Spirit, that we might understand the stakes, that we might understand the temptations, that we might understand the power that resides within us, the power to be crucified and yet be raised, the power to be, to, uh, the power to be resisted and yet to stand, the power to be misunderstood 
and yet to be kept. Give us that power so that the world might know that you are king. It's in Jesus' name we pray.